Good morning. Before we pray, I'd like to read from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with us. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he received. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be here this morning to worship, to sing songs of uh, worship to you. Father, we thank you for your word in which we find the testimony of who you are and who your son Jesus is. And we pray that as we study it and hear from it this morning, that you would help us to understand it. Father, I pray that your spirit would move in our minds and our hearts and our bodies this morning as we listen. I pray for any who may be here who have not yet trusted in your son Jesus Christ for eternal life that from uh, this passage, from your word, they would hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died and risen again so we can have life. I pray they would put their faith in you. And Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I pray that we would listen to your word. I pray we would heed the work of your spirit in our minds so that we can understand, in our hearts so that we will believe and submit, and in our bodies so that we will obey and do your will. We thank you again, God, and we pray be with us now as we hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, my first camp experience was when I was about eight years old, and uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I went to a camp that was about an hour away from home, and... uh, Loved it. They had all of the camp things that you would expect. They had swimming and archery and horseback riding and everything great about a camp, especially at my age. And one of the favorite activities for all of the campers uh, was a zip line that they had at this camp where uh, you would climb up on a tower. It was maybe 15 or 20 feet high. And uh, you would grab onto a hand trolley that was attached to a cable. 
And uh, you would jump off of the tower holding on to this hand trolley and you would slide down the cable down to the ground and the other end of the cable was attached to a tree. You let go of the trolley and get off. And then you grabbed a rope that was attached to the trolley and you'd pull it back up to the top of the tower so that the next person could participate. And uh, I loved it. We did this all the time. And this was back uh, years ago in the day and age before camps were quite as concerned about liability as they are now. And uh, this story will highlight that. Uh, some of us decided to get onto this trolley, onto this zip line, one of the days of camp, and it was not supervised very well. And so there really weren't any other counselors or anybody around. Uh, and we just decided we were going to go play with this thing. And so uh, I walked up to it, and I was the first one to go. And I climbed up that tower. I grabbed onto the trolley, and I jumped off of the tower. And uh, it was around that time that I realized that the rope that was attached to one end of the trolley had also been tied on the other end to the tower and had not been uh, untied before I jumped. And so I got a few feet into this journey and the trolley stopped. It jerked to a stop and I lost my grip and I fell to the ground about 15 feet below and landed on my arm, Uh, at which point I heard a terrible noise. If you've broken a bone, you probably know the noise. There was a little snap and I got up and my arm began to swell. And um, I hope I'm not making anybody sick. I'm not going to give a lot of details here, but my arm began to swell. It looked really ugly. Uh, A counselor ran over, said, what's happened? And I said, I fell off. I think I may have hurt myself. He took a look at my arm. He said, no, you're good. Go on. And uh, (laughs) sent me along to uh, continue with my day. And so uh, I walked over to go get a snack. I figured as long as I was hurting, I might as well fill my stomach. And so uh, I was standing in line. And while I was in line, the nurse walked by and uh, she kind of walked by like this. And then she did a double take as she saw my arm, uh, which was about twice its normal size and multiple colors. And uh, she said, what has happened to you? And I said, well, I fell down uh, and hit my arm, but that counselor said I was fine. So I... uh, (laughs) Went ahead and got in line and she said, you are not fine. Uh, We're going to the emergency room. Got in the car, went to the emergency room. And it was at that point that my pain really began. Uh, Because in order to set the bone, the doctor gave me uh, some anesthetic. I'm not going to give a lot of details, don't worry. Um, But the process of setting that bone was one of the most painful of my life. Uh, In fact, to the point where uh, my screaming uh, reached a pitch where the doctor finally instructed his staff to close the door so as not to frighten the other patients that were in the vicinity. Uh, It was terrible. And uh, I still remember vividly how painful that was. And to my eight-year-old mind, uh, I remember thinking, why is he doing this to me? This is not a nice thing to do. This is a doctor. He's supposed to be helping me. Now, with uh, years of hindsight, I can look back and I go, no, he was doing a good thing. In order for my arm to be healthy and whole and healed, I had to go through that pain. Uh, Maybe not to the same extent. Maybe there was something he could have done. But he was helping me, even though it felt like he was hurting me. Now my arm is back to normal. They say that in the places it's broken, it's stronger than it was before it is broken. But to get to that place of health, I had to go through this pain. And uh, a lot of our life mirrors that experience. If you really want to grow in something, if you want to develop a skill, uh, it often requires intense trial and even pain. If you want to get in shape, if you want your muscles and your body to respond as they ought to, 
Sometimes it requires pain. If you want to learn to run well and be a good runner, uh, the first time you go out there, your lungs and your muscles and your legs, they're going to scream, do not do this to me. And yet as you push through it, you're going to grow in strength and ability to run. You want to learn how to play guitar like these guys do up here. It requires effort and trial. And in fact, even some pain, your fingers will go through a period of time where the skin will develop calluses. But in order to do that, the skin has to rub and hurt and it's painful. But there's no other way to learn to play the guitar than to go through that period of pain. A lot of our life is that way. And the spiritual life is no different. All of us who know Jesus Christ would probably say, I want to imitate or reflect the character of Jesus Christ. I want to love people like Jesus loves people. I want to be kind like he is kind. I want to know God the Father like he knew and knows God the Father. I want to be like Jesus. But the challenge as we look at the scripture is that there really is no path to holiness that avoids trial and pain and persecution. Eternal life is an absolutely free gift. If you have believed in Jesus Christ and the fact that he died for your sins and rose again, you have eternal life. It's an absolutely free gift. If you have not believed that, you do not have eternal life. And the the challenge of the scripture for you this morning is to look at what Jesus has done and to believe and begin to know that you have eternal life. But for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and have eternal life, then the process of our lives is growing to become more like Jesus, to reflect him better to become like him and to become the men and women that God wants us to be in Jesus Christ. But there is no path to that holiness apart from trial. 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a promise for you. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is no path to Christ-likeness that does not go through the road of trial and pain and persecution. And the author of the book of Hebrews has been addressing that with his people all the way through this book. Because this is a group of men and women, they're Jewish Christians, probably living in Rome in a pagan context in which they are under intense pressure to walk away from Jesus Christ and to return to the relative safety of Judaism. And the reason they are wanting to do that is because they've been undergoing trial and persecution, particularly for their faith. And some of them have lost their home. Some of them have lost their property. Some of them have been imprisoned. And their temptation is to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And to look and go, God, if we are your people, if you have saved us in Jesus Christ, then why are you letting this pain come into our lives? And why would I stick to this plan of following Jesus Christ? And the author of the Hebrews then, all the way through this book, has been challenging them that true life and reward in heaven comes from persisting in your walk with Jesus Christ. Again, eternal life is a free gift, but Hebrews makes it clear that there are rewards for those who are faithful in Jesus Christ. The opportunity to hear praise from the lips of our Savior, the opportunity to receive what Paul calls crowns with which we will worship Jesus Christ, the opportunity to reign alongside Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And all through the book of Hebrews, the author has been challenging his people, stay the course. And as he talks about trial, and particularly in their case, persecution, but I think it applies to trial and difficulty in the life of a Christian in general. He says, stay the course because by doing so, God is going to transform you into the character of Jesus Christ and then allow you to receive the fullness of the reward that he wants to give to you. So how do we do that? How do we stay the course well? My guess is that everybody in this room, if you're not going through a trial right now, 
uh, you've just recently gone through one. If you haven't just recently gone through one and you're not going through one, you're probably about to go through one. And so it is universal to our experience as human beings and as believers in Jesus Christ that we will have to walk through that path. So our author says, how do we do that in a way where we can stay the course and allow these trials to transform us into the character of Jesus Christ? And the first thing he says is this, focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus as you run the race. Verses one through three. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All right, he begins by saying, we have this great cloud of witnesses. And the reference there goes back to chapter 11. If you've read Hebrews chapter 11, you know that it's the great hall of faith where our author gives us a a list of men and women from the Old Testament who have been faithful to God, even in the midst of persecution and trial and difficulty. There was Abraham and Moses and Noah and Enoch and all of these judges and prophets who persevered and followed God to the end of their life, even when it was difficult. And he says, you've got this great cloud of witnesses and the imagery is they've gone before you, they've crossed the finish line ahead of you and now they're standing on the other side of the finish line and they are testifying to the fact, they are witnessing to the fact that it is worth it to keep running because there's a reward at the end of that finish line. And then what he does is this, he says, with all of this great cloud of witnesses, you focus your eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the preeminent witness amongst all that cloud of witnesses. Jesus is the master at suffering well. And so if you want to know how to suffer well, you look at your Savior and you fix your eyes on him and you run toward him and you lay aside all the encumbrances. You want to know how to do anything well, you look at those who are great. I have three kids. My oldest two are daughters and the oldest one is about six and a half. She's closing in on seven right now and she... uh, is really into art. She loves to draw and she loves to color and uh, anything art-related, sculpting with Play-Doh, whatever it may be, she enjoys it. And sometimes she will ask me to model something for her, uh, to make a a dog out of Play-Doh or to draw a duck or something along those lines. Uh, The problem is that I am comically bad at art. And uh, I have been for most of my life It is hard, really hard even for me to draw an accurate stick figure and make it look good. And uh, I'm not exaggerating. When I was in elementary school, other kids would laugh at my drawings. And and, and they weren't being mean. They they were genuinely funny. I would have laughed too (laughs) if it wasn't so painful to see that that came out of my pen. And so uh, I've gotten a little better over the years, but I still still struggle with it. In fact, a couple of months ago, I was at my parents' house, and I was drawing with sidewalk chalk with my daughters on my parents' driveway, and my dad came out, and he looks at it, and he goes, Matt, you have gotten a lot better. And uh, I was like, well, since I was 12, like, I hope so, you know, but it's still not great, you know? So it's like, good for me, but I still struggle with this, and so I can help her a little bit. I can draw, like, a dog, but it might kind of look like a horse, or I can draw a duck, but it might look like a boat, and I do my best but I'm not great at it. And so if she really wants to ultimately be really good, uh, she probably shouldn't look at my example 
I'm a limited example. She's going to need to look at a master, whether it's Renoir or Van Gogh or whoever it may be. She's got to look at somebody who does this really well. This is what our author is saying in Hebrews 12 at the beginning. You want to know how to suffer well, you look at Jesus. And he's given us a good list of men and women who did it well, but they are still limited. Jesus is the one that we look at because he did it perfectly. And often, I don't know about you, but in the midst of trial, in the midst of pain, in the midst of persecution, my responses are anger or withdrawal or something besides submission to God. And what we see in Jesus is a perfect submission to God when he could have lashed out, when he could have run away. He handles it perfectly. And it says he did so for the joy set before him, that he knew God would reward him for his faithfulness. And he despised the shame. He didn't like the fact that he had to die in shame on the cross. You see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he did so for our salvation and because of the joy set before him. And he didn't lash out. He didn't take revenge. He didn't run away. This is what 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about when it talks about Jesus' suffering. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, So his suffering was undeserved, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Our salvation was ultimately accomplished because of Jesus' suffering and then his resurrection on our behalf. And in the midst of undeserved suffering, what did Jesus do? He didn't utter threats. He didn't revile. He didn't lash out. He didn't run away. But he entrusted himself. He kept entrusting himself moment by moment to the God that he knew was in charge. And so Hebrews says, that's who you look at as you run. And you lay aside all of the distractions and all of the encumbrances that might keep you from running well. Greek athletes would often literally uh, run without any clothes. They would take everything off because it was considered a distraction or a hindrance while they ran. And they would be able to run as well as they could, they believed, without any of those encumbrances. And that is the imagery here. You cast every distraction aside. We are distractible people. And it's easy for our eyes to slip away from focusing on Jesus. We're distractible. You know this because, men, you've been to Lowe's to buy a light bulb and you've come out with a lawnmower, right? (laughs) Ladies, you've been to buy a blouse at the mall and you come out with a closet full of stuff, right? Because we're distractible. I had a friend in college that uh, we would say that he went into a time warp at times because uh, we would be ready to go to dinner or something. We'd be standing in the hallway of our dorm room and uh, he would say, I'm just going to go put on my shoes and I'll be right back. And uh, he would go out to his room and then 10, 15 minutes later, we'd be going, where did he go? How long does it take to put on his shoes? And so we would go and check on him and uh, find that he had completely forgotten why he went to his room in the first place. He would be distracted by a video game his roommate was playing or a show he was watching and just had completely forgotten what he came there to do. We're distractible people. So he says, cast aside the distractions and you focus your eyes on Jesus and you do so by continuing to come back to the scripture, continuing to spend time in prayer, continuing to be in the community of people who can remind you, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And there's all kinds of distractions and hindrances that will keep us from running well and that will make it a deeper challenge in the midst of trial. Maybe it's a sin distraction. 
whether it's pride or anger or lust or whatever it is that drags us down and keeps us really from being able to know Jesus as we should and focus on him. And so we struggle spiritually. And so when we're in the midst of trial, we respond out of this sin instead of out of how the scripture would call us to respond. For many of us, I think really what it is is just noise. Uh, We live in a culture that is just, we're filled with noise all the time. Some of you, maybe you have your iPhone stapled to your forehead and it is always there and it never leaves. And so the moment you wake up in the morning, you sit up and you go, who emailed me while I was asleep, right? I need to check on this. You put the earphones in, you walk into the kitchen, you sit down on the computer and all day long from sunup to sundown, there's just noise. And so you never have time to build deeply into your walk with Jesus Christ in quietness and solitude and being in the scripture and being in prayer. And so you're distracted. And so when trials come, often we don't have the resources that we need to respond well. So the author says, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Be in the word, be in prayer, be in community so that you will constantly remember what you're running toward. And look at how Jesus suffered and model yourself after him. And as we do that, then that allows us to accept trials as God's loving discipline in our lives. Look at verses 4 through 11. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your struggle against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This author begins in verse three by reminding these people, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In other words, for this group of people, some of them had been in prison, some of them had lost property, but apparently they had not yet been martyred. Apparently nobody had yet been tortured to the point of shedding blood. And he says, you've not yet resisted to the point that Jesus did, and yet you still are tempted to walk away. And the reason is twofold. One, because they haven't adequately fixed their eyes on Jesus, but two, because they have not processed well what God is doing in their life through the trials. That God has allowed these things into their life in order to discipline and train them and transform them into the character of Jesus Christ. And God disciplines us because he loves us, not because he hates us. And what's interesting in the scripture is he doesn't really give a particular reason. Here's why John Smith lost his house last week. He doesn't tell you that. But instead, what he says is this is how we are called to respond and view suffering as an opportunity to allow God to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. He says every father who loves his kids disciplines them. That's a very practical, uh, earthly philosophy. Right, very practical. If you are a father or a mother and you have children, you discipline them, you set boundaries around them, sometimes you say no, sometimes you take things away because you love them, not because you hate them. Several years ago, I was at the mall with my kids and we were playing just kind of around 
uh, some of these little cars and trucks that you have to put money in and they kind of give you a little ride. And uh, I did not have any money at the time. And so we were just playing on them. And uh, while we were playing, a kid that I had never really seen before came up to me and he said, would you give me some money for these cars? And I said, well, no, I'm sorry. I don't have any money. Uh, And he rolled his eyes and he went, "Ah," and walked away. And uh, I thought, I'm really, really sorry. I can start carrying money for you or, you know, whatever. Um, He came back a few minutes later and uh, he looked at me and he said, I got money. My dad gave me money. My dad always gives me money when I ask for it. And he walked over and put the money in the machine. And I thought, I don't know if that's true. And I don't know if his dad always gives him money every time he wants it. The kid could have just been acting like a punk that day or telling me a story. But let's just say for a minute that that's true, that dad always gives him whatever he asks for every moment. He says, I want money. Give, give, give. I want to do this. Okay, go ahead. You could actually give a child enough freedom and enough money and enough things that they could destroy themselves, right? And the truth is that when you say no, when you set boundaries and limits, you're not doing it because you hate him. You're doing it because you love him. And you know that in the long run, that discipline you hope is going to result in good character. In a child who knows how to wait for things and be patient. If you never have to wait for anything, you never really learn patience. In a child who knows contentment because there are things they don't have. If you always have everything you want, it's harder to learn contentment. And the scripture says that God is doing the same thing in our lives. If I never experience persecution or insults, it's hard to learn how to respond graciously as Jesus did. So God allows some of these things into our life to discipline us because he loves us and he's shaping us and he's transforming us into the character of Christ. Just like as a parent, discipline hopefully shapes and transforms these children into men and women of character. That is what God is doing. And this is a radically different perspective on suffering than most of the world around us. We think if I hurt, I need to quickly take a Tylenol. I need to quickly go take a nap. I need to either get away from it, alleviate the pain, ignore it. Instead, what our author says is you look at that discipline and that trial in your life as an opportunity to respond as God is calling you to. To allow yourself to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, even as it hurts. God is changing you. And he does so to make us holy, to make us like his son. And so the reality is that uh, there are very few circumstances in my life, in your life, that we can change. I can't really change how other people respond. Many of you who have kids know you try to change how your children respond. But often it seems like you can't, right? You can't change how other people often respond. You can't change the circumstances that come into your life. What you can control is how you respond to them. Do I respond with trust and submission to God or do I respond with bitterness and anger and withdrawal and frustration? And I think there's a couple of key things that God trains us to do in the midst of trial and persecution and difficulty. One is simply to trust him, to recognize that he has a plan that we can't see that is greater than our plan. And even though uh, there is no promise that everything's going to work out as we want them to, as we want things to. There are promises in scripture, Romans 8, for example, that God is working everything toward good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we trust that God's plan is ultimately good. Even if we don't see that good until the day Jesus returns. And so in the midst of a trial or a persecution or a difficulty, I look to God and I say, God, I don't know what you're doing and I may not even like it, 
but I trust you. When Shannon and I were living in Dallas and I was going through seminary, one of the constant, consistent challenges that we had was in the area of finances. Specifically, we didn't have really any. Uh, We really struggled financially. And there were uh, many, many months that we had more month than we had money. And it wasn't because we were uh, spending just in crazy amounts. It was just that the inflow uh, was a little bit less than the outflow. And so we would reach uh, the Tuesday and we had another week until she or I got paid and there was just no money left. And it was that point of saying, uh, either I'm going to trust God that he's going to provide or I guess we're going to waste away, right? And you face that enough times and, and many times, I'll admit I responded with anger, frustration, doubt, disappointment. But over time, we began to say, what is it that God is wanting to, to train us to do? And probably more me than my sweet wife, but to teach me and train me that, that he's saying, trust me. I'm still here, right? I, I still have clothes on my back. There's a roof over my head. Nobody died, right? We're still alive. And God was working his purpose in me, not so that he could ultimately make me wealthy, no, so that he could ultimately train me to trust him in this area. So I think often God is doing something in our life to train us and move us, to transform us to be people who will trust him, and then also people who will submit to his authority. And submission to authority is a hard one, but as as you look at how Jesus responds to authority, both God's authority and earthly authority, Jesus consistently responds by entrusting himself to God. And what's interesting is he places himself, even under earthly authority, men and women who are inferior to him in every respect, and yet he placed himself under their authority, recognizing that it was an extension of God's authority. And he says, in the midst of this trial, even though I am greater than these men and women, I will trust in God and I will submit to authority and allow God to transform and shape me. So often God is training us to say, you know, I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. And I can respond with rebellion or anger, or I can respond with submission. So God disciplines us because he loves us and he wants to make us holy. And there's really only one path to do that. And if you look at men and women toward the end of their life, You may observe a pattern that uh, some are angry, bitter, frustrated because they didn't get everything they wanted. Others are open, joyful, and loving, and they love God and they love others. And often the difference is not in the quality of circumstances, but in how they chose to respond moment by moment, day by day, to the trials and the difficulties and the discipline that God placed in their life. Do I respond with trust? And submission, or do I respond with anger, bitterness, withdrawal? And so in each moment of difficulty and trial, I ask, what can God shape me toward in this moment? How can God transform me? And how will I respond, even if it hurts deeply? Will I respond in a way that exercises trust and submission and focus on Jesus Christ and what he has done? And what I love is the way that our author finishes up this passage He says, we respond to trial by looking at Jesus and accepting it as God's discipline. But then he says, here's what you do. You strengthen your resolve now to run. 
Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. In other words, he says that the solution to doing well in trial actually is not just to take another Tylenol or try to take a nap or to get away. But the solution is you stand up, you straighten your legs, you straighten your arms, you look at Jesus and you run even harder and faster toward Jesus. And I think often our temptation, again, is we want to get away from it. And he says, no, in the midst of that, even in the midst of the pain, what you do is you run toward Jesus and you imitate him and you share him with others and you reflect to the world around you the persistence and the patience and the love and the submission that Jesus Christ demonstrated when he was undergoing suffering. And you straighten up even when it hurts because God has called us to reflect him. And to be like him. Uh, There's a very famous story that um, some of you have probably heard. From the 1968 Olympics, there was a marathon runner named John Stephen Aquari from Tanzania. And uh, he began to run the marathon. And early on in the race, a few miles in, he fell down and he dislocated his knee. Now, I have never dislocated a knee, uh, but I understand that it's painful. And uh, if I were to dislocate a knee, I would find a chair and a bag of Doritos. I would be done, all right? Uh, Probably even if I skinned a knee in the process of this marathon. Uh, But John Stephen Inquiry, he got up a few miles into this race and he ran the rest of the marathon, 15, 20 more miles. He hobbled along. About an hour after everybody else finished, he hobbled into the stadium. He crossed the finish line. There were only a few people there. They stood up, gave him a standing ovation for finishing. And uh, later a reporter asked him, uh, Mr. Onquari, why why did you keep running? Why didn't you stop? And here's what he said. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. God has called you and me not to start the race, but to finish the race. And even as it hurts, even as there is pain and difficulty and trial and persecution in our life, our author says, stand up and run. And you say, you know, I'm really not, I'm not ever going to be the smartest, the most gifted, the most godly person on my block. The author says, you run as fast as you can. And when you cross that line, you look to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not smartest, not most gifted, not tallest, not best looking, good and faithful. Because you responded to what God placed in your life by pursuing Jesus Christ, fixing your eyes on him, and allowing the circumstances of your life to shape you more into the image of Jesus Christ instead of pushing you further away. And so the author says, yeah, strengthen your resolve. Stand up and run. Quickly as we close, a few practical thoughts. First of all, this, set aside distractions, like we said earlier. If there's sin in your life, if there's pain in your life, particularly that you you may need to deal with before you you feel that you can run well, maybe you need to get some help. Maybe you need to spend some time seeking health and wholeness spiritually and emotionally, maybe even spiritually as well. In order to do that, The goal is you want to set aside distractions and you seek to get well. But the goal is you seek to get well so that you can eventually run better, right? It's like being in the hospital. You go to the hospital 
The goal is not to live in the hospital for the rest of your life. The goal is to seek health. And then you get out and you live. So maybe you need to pull away. You need to get some help from this community, maybe from a counselor, maybe from a mentor where you can grow in your walk with Jesus again. And then you stand up and you set aside the distractions. Maybe for some it's, it's simpler than that. You just need to take the iPhone off the forehead for a while. Right? Be quiet and remove the distractions in your life and allow yourself to hear from God so you know who Jesus is. So that when trials and persecutions come, you're prepared. And you're ready because you have a deep relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So set aside distractions. Secondly, seek to be transformed. Remain teachable and open to what the word of God may have to say to you and your brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are your mentors and your leaders. Seek to be transformed. If you ever get to a place, if I ever get to a place where we say, you know, I pretty much am done. I've got it. That's a a bad place to be. Because in our pride and our unwillingness to learn, when we buck up against God, we actually are moving further away instead of closer to him. So seek to be transformed and put yourself in an attitude where God can change you into the image of Jesus Christ. And then finally, don't stop running. Don't stop running. Even in the midst of difficulty and pain and trial and persecution, fix your eyes on Jesus and run straight at him. Tell others about him. And seek to imitate the character of Jesus Christ more and more as you pursue what he has for you. Never stop running. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through the power of your spirit, you're transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we know that sometimes you do that through trial and pain. And Lord, uh, I know that even this morning there are men and women in here that are feeling deep pain and difficulty in their lives, either due to circumstances or their own choices. And Father, we pray that you would, through your Spirit, heal our hearts and our minds, bring comfort, but also bring conviction. Father, I pray for those who may need encouragement that you would provide, and I pray for those who may need exhortation to run that you would provide that as well. And Father, we just ask that you would Transform us to be more and more like Jesus each day until the day we cross the finish line and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we look forward to that day in which Jesus will return and you will remove all sickness, all pain. You'll wipe away every tear. And in the meanwhile, we keep our eyes on you and seek to do your will. We thank you, God, for your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.